this is all going to line up. There is a picture coming of Stretch Armstrong. Does anyone remember Stretch Armstrong? All the older, older folks, right? Some of us younger folks. I had, a, I had a Stretch Armstrong for a very short amount of time. And one of the neat things about Stretch Armstrong, if you get really bored, is you can go on YouTube and watch people try to pull Stretch Armstrongs apart. Now, they are, in some ways, probably the most indestructible toy. And all it really is is this, like, boiled-down cornstarch. It is not really that complicated of a toy. But my favorite one is watching two cars. They, like, hooked up a Stretch Armstrong to two cars, and it had the cars go in separate directions. You can, you can YouTube that, and you can see the destruction of Stretch Armstrong. But one of the things that's unique about him is he can be pulled. And he wasn't very big. He was like, let me see, my notes tell me he was about 15 inches tall. But you could stretch him four and a half feet apart and without ripping. And most people would, were not strong enough physically to do that. And one of the things that I think stretch kind of reveals is this temptation we have to try to be stretched in two different directions, to be pulled in different places. And what I want us to think about for just a second is in your own life right now, there is going to be two things pulling on you. The, the temptation of the world to do something the easy way out, and then there's the temptation, uh, the pull of God to pull you the way that God wants you to go. And the struggle for all of us is to basically let go of one and embrace the other. And one of the things I want you just to think about, I'll give you 30 seconds, is, what is where is one area in your life where there's worry or there's temptation or there's anxiety? Because often that, those three places, temptation, worry, and anxiety, are where there's something going on in your life and you're feeling pulled in different directions, okay? I want you to think about that for a moment and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on. So when we experience worry, is there not a temptation to manipulate events to try to get the outcome you want? And when we experience struggles and we know that God's saying, you must trust me, you must obey and do what I want you to do, is there not this pull to go a different direction? And we can end up like Stretch here, yanked in the middle and really going nowhere, being pulled apart in two different directions. And one of the things that this text is going to deal with is how do we let go of being pulled in the middle? How do we find peace in a world that is ripping us apart? And so we're going to take a look today at the pull of idolatry, the pull of faith, and the pull of heartbreak. Those are the three things we're going to look at that this text is going to unpack for us. The pull of idolatry, the pull of heartbreak, and the pull of faith. Um, Isaiah 43 actually begins in Isaiah 42, right? Is that not surprising to anyone in here, right? The passage before deals with this text. And Isaiah 43 has this very uplifting and very powerful phrase. And if you take a look at verse two, here's what Isaiah 43 says. When you pass through the fires, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And that's a very positive, encouraging verse. But where we need to start really is we need to start in Isaiah 42 because we're gonna see a contrast to this walking by faith and this picture of idolatry. And so here's where we get this idea. We become like what we worship. In that passage we read, one, Psalm 115, as a congregation, if you noticed, it began with, unto you, O Lord, be the glory. And then it jumped to talking about becoming like these idols that can't see, they can't hear, they can't move, they can't talk. And those who make them become like them. And this passage is going to start with that idea. So if you look at chapter 42 of Isaiah, verse 16, 17, here's what he says. 
He says, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things that I will do, and I will not forsake them. But those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. Hear, you deaf, look you blind and see. Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger that I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you have paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. Do you notice a comparison between this text and the Psalm 115? You see, you, you have eyes you can't see, you have ears but you can't hear, and you have mouths but you cannot speak. And if you look back to verse 17, why? Because the people of God are flirting with idolatry, and they're becoming like the idols they worship. They're becoming like them. And we all have that pull within us. So you notice he's like, you're committed to me, and yet you're committed to your, your idols. You're my messenger, but yet you refuse to speak. And so the people of Israel are pulled between worshiping the Lord and worshiping the idols of the nations around them. And it's kind of easy for us in 21st century America to look at our own lives and be like, but we don't, we don't worship statues anymore. You know, we don't go to temples and offer sacrifices. So we can, we can easily think that there are not idols in my heart, that there are not things in me that are a problem. And so for us, what are some common idols in our culture? What are things that we worship? things that we value, things that we put up as the preeminent thing that we want to pursue. So again, I'm, I'm like the high school teacher, so one way to keep people from falling asleep is to ask questions. So just give me some feedback. What are some common idols? And I have two pictures of fish here. I'll get to that in just a second. What are some idols we swim around in that we may not even be aware of unless we think about it? Money. Yeah, huge, right? And all that money provides, wealth, security, the hope for a future, Give me some more of the things that we value in our culture. Leisure time and entertainment. Yes, those things are huge for us. Any more? Power. Yeah, power is a big one. One more time. Recognition, popularity, honor from people. Absolutely. I heard one more. Technology and all the things that that provides us, which could be all the things we just mentioned. Right? We all swim in them. And so there's this story of two fish swimming in the ocean. They're two young fish, and they're swimming along, and an older fish swims by and says, how's the water, boys? And the two fish keep swimming, and then they turn to each other, and they ask the question, what's water? We swim around in idolatry, and we don't even know, we're not even aware of it. Now, here's the danger. We become like whatever we worship. If we worship Jesus, what, what happens over time? We become like Jesus. And if we worship idols, even if we're unaware of the fact we're worshiping idols, what happens to us? We become like them, the thing we worship. I want to show two pictures, right? Cold, hard cash. If you worship cold, hard cash, what happens to your heart? Towards other people. It grows cold and hard towards other people, right? And here's a, my, my favorite first-time video game, Mario. I'm of that era, not the Atari or Tetris, for those of you who are older, Mario was my first video game system. And I remember when I would be playing Mario, I could hear nothing. Now, it's not that my ears weren't working, but how many of you have ever played a video game? This is for the younger, well, maybe not, I don't know, I'm not that young, and I still play video games, and someone comes to talk to you, and you cannot hear them. Yeah, yeah? I mean, your mom has to get in your face and scream at you or turn off the TV before you can hear, 
Ever had that experience? Now, for those of you who are the video gamers, have you ever yelled at your video game character? And did your video game character listen to you? No, I was like, Mario, you fell off the cliff again. Mario was like, I'm, a th I'm an eight pick character, you know, like I don't have a thought or a process. So I just want you to notice something. You're yelling at the video game character that can't hear you. And your real life person is yelling at you and you can't hear them. You become like what you worship, right? Now that's a, that's a fun, simple one, right? But what if that's true across the board? What if that's true with all the idols in our heart? Power and money and honor and wealth. What if we become like what we worship? And the biggest danger would be we're becoming like the things we worship and we're not even aware that it's an idol in our lives and it's shaping us into its own image and we don't even see it. We can't see it. And that was what was happening with the people here. He's like, these people who say they trust in me are really actively trusting in idols, saying you are our gods and we are no different. And the struggle for us is to let go of the both and, right? We, we want to hold on to the both and. I love both God and money. And if you know what Jesus says about that, what does he say about that? You can't. You will either, anyone know that verse well enough? You can't serve two masters. You're either going to love one or hate the other. You're going to desire one and be devoted to one or neglect the other, you cannot serve both God and money. That's what Jesus brings it down to. The both and is an attempt to try to live in two worlds. And for us in America, it's super easy to try to do both, to be dedicated to God, at least in some level, and be dedicated to money on another, or dedicated to God on one level, but dedicated to power for the other. And there's, there's a pull. We're, we're pulling the Stretch Armstrong. And one of the things we're gonna see throughout the Bible is the both and reveals a major problem for us because it's easy to think of both and in categories like, well, can I do this and this? And it's fine in certain places. But when we think about devoted relationships, you can't play the both and. You can't because the Bible is going to use the picture of idolatry and adultery in the same sentence, right? Nobody says uh, when they're experiencing betrayal by another, that I know that person loves me and the other person and I'm totally cool with that. Nobody says that because you can't live in a both and when it's a devoted relationship. And when it comes to the picture of God, he says, you're either for me or you're against me. You're either committed to me or you're not. And this is God's people and they can't do it. And let's be honest with ourselves. Can we do it? And the struggle is very, very intense and very real. But the picture here is not of a, a spouse. The picture here is of a servant. So if you look at verse 19, he gives us a couple pictures. We have a deaf, blind servant messenger. Now, is it a major problem to be deaf or blind? No, I mean, you can't control that. And, and should a deaf and blind person be hired? Depending on the job, sure. But notice what this is saying. This isn't saying that these people are deaf and blind by nature. Notice what's saying. They are deaf and blind by choice, right? It's one thing to be blind and be born that way. It's another thing to be wearing super dark glasses with you know, a blindfold on and then walking around that way. And that's the picture of the nation of Israel. He's like, you're my servants, but you can't hear what I'm telling you. You can't see what I'm showing you. 
You can't say what I want you to say. And it's not that you're unable, it's that you refuse. You don't want to give up those things. You kind of like the excuse of being blind and unable to see and unable to speak and unable to hear. And that, again, is a very hard passage, right? So when we think about God walking with us through trial, we just have to take a step back and take a look at what he's talking about here. Because these, this situation finds, finds its full picture in the contrast of how we operate without surrender to God. It's just the nature of who we are. And he says this about idolatry. Like if you look at verse 17, it's utterly shameful, right? It's giving credit to something that can't do anything for you. It's saying this thing is most important when the true giver of all things is ignored by you. And he says it's utterly shameful. And so what does God do in this situation? What do you do when you have a person who will not see? And if you drop down to verse 25 of chapter 42, here's what God does with Israel. Okay, he says, So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Notice that last part. God brings discipline and judgment on his people, and not without warning, right? If you read the Old Testament, prophet after prophet after prophet comes and says, you need to change, you need to repent, here's your problem, here's the solution. The people consistently say, now we're good. And notice what it says. God brings judgment, he brings discipline, and what's their heart response? Unchanged. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with a person who has come to the end of everything, has lost everything, and still refuses to change? Now, some of us have met people like that, right? And what do you do with a person like that? If you've done everything, and they've lost everything, and they still don't want what, you're, what they need, it's heartbreaking. Because on one level, you can do nothing about it. And that's where this passage moves to perhaps the most amazing good news ever, right? So take a look now at verse 43, verse 1. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. Now, I want you to think about something for a second. Has the nation of Israel undergone a radical change from verse 25 to verse 1? Are they the same group of sinful rebel idol worshipers? So what's different now? Notice what it says. But now God is going to do something different with these people. He's going to discipline them, but he's going to do something different with them. And it's all going to boil out of this love. So God is going to be the judge, right? We got Judge Judy up here. And he's going to sit in judgment. And he's going to send the nation of Israel into exile. But here is the most amazing thing of the book of Ezekiel. The nation of Judah is overrun by the Babylonians and they are carted off into slavery for 70 years. And if you know the passages, where does the, the presence of God go? It tells us in Ezekiel that the presence of God moves out of the holy place in the temple. And then it moves towards the east gate and then it moves over the eastern mountains. And we're like, cool. What does that even mean? But think about the nation in the picture of geography. What direction is Babylon from Jerusalem? East. 
God is sending his people into disciplined judgment. But what is he doing? He's going with them. So picture Judge Judy here. She sits in her judge seat. She meets out judgment. But how weird would it be if in the process she's like, I sentenced you to, well, I don't think she sends anyone to prison, right? That's not what Judge Judy does. But let's pretend for a moment that she got elevated. Now she's not dealing with whatever. And she's like, I sentenced you to 10 years of prison. And then she steps down off of her bench. She takes off of her judge robe and she puts on the prison clothes and she goes into judgment with you. How strange would that be? And yet we're going to see that God does something even more extreme than just give judgment to a people and then go through the judgment with them. So the next question is, why would Judge Judy do that? Why would God do that? Why would he step off of his throne? And why would he go into judgment with his people into Babylon? And it boils down to this question, love. So for a minute, I want you to think of a person you love. You can always go with your mom. You know, that always works. Pick a person you love and list what makes you love them. What is it about them that makes you love them? Okay, I'm not going to have you like shout out answers, so don't worry. But I do want you to think of a couple things. Give me two or three things. The person you love and why. Got your person in your mind? For most of us, hopefully, the person we love the most, it should be pretty easy to come up with reasons why we love them, right? But here's the thing about that trouble, is whatever the reasons for why we love them, what if the thing changed? Even something foundational. So I have three kids. You know, every year, supposedly, according to a stat I read, maybe Rachel can confirm this, 28,000 babies get switched in the hospital. And usually they get caught before they leave the hospital. But if that stat is correct, 28,000 babies could be switched at birth in America. Maybe you can fact check me on that. So let's say all three of my kids, just by circumstance, were switched at birth. And I'm suddenly raising someone else's children and my kids are who knows where. As crazy as that would be, if my love for my kids is built on the fact that they're my blood, would that end my love for them? Probably not, right? But in other areas of life, our loves are built on circumstance. So I'll pick a different one. I fell in love with Melody for lots of reasons. She's very trustworthy. She's very beautiful. And all those things are still true and even more so. Everyone go, ah, you know. So, yeah. Aw. Now, is it possible that a car wreck could happen and those two traits that I love in her could change? The beauty and the trustworthiness. Could her personality undergo a major change if a car accident happened and brain damage took place? And if my love for her is built on those two things, what does that say about my love? It's built on a thing that is not permanent. Now let's take the same concept and apply it to God. Does he love you because you're nice? Because he, you know, why does he love you? And if his love for you is built on something in you, how stable is that love? It's only as stable as that trait. But now... Let's take a look at verse 7, because here's where we're going to see why does God love you? Look at verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Notice what he says here. We have two thoughts. God saves us because ultimately he wants to for his name's sake. You see why that's, not, that's much better than saving you because of who you are? 
Because what if who you are doesn't measure up? Then your salvation is only as strong as that thing. But if he saves you because of his glory, because of who he is, then how stable is that? Because we're talking about the God who remains unchanging. So he says, I save you, Israel, and Clinton Corners people, not because of something in you, but because of something in me. Because I, ultimately, because I want to save you. Because of my glory. And then we get to the second one. He saves in order to show us something about his glory. You think about the person that you love and loving them when things are easy, right? So, you know, if you have a kid and your kid's on the honor roll or just had National Honor Society, how easy is it to love them and be proud of them in that moment? Easy. Now, when you get that call at 10 o'clock at night and your kid wrapped his car around a telephone pole, you still love them, but how easy is it at that point? God loves us in spite of our sin to show the level of the depth of his love. If he loves us only when we're doing well in life and we're walking in his ways and we obey him, in one way, how easy is it to love people who are easy to love? But if he loves us when we're idol-worshiping rebels who are off seeking our own glory, seeking to do our own thing, and he still loves you then, how deep does his love go? It goes all the way. And again, the stability of walking with God. And here's what the Christian message says that's so different from any other worldview. Walking with God is not built on you. It's built on him. And that changes how we see our failures. It changes how we see the failures of others because suddenly your sin against me is nothing compared to my sin against God. You and I are way more similar than we are different. And God loves you as much as he loves me, even if your sin is worse than mine because of who he is. And he chooses to save and chooses to love because of who he is. And so when he talks to Israel here and he says, but now I'm going to do something different. It's not that they've changed. It's that he's doing something for them that's a little bit different than what he's done before. And he says now in verse two, I will walk with you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned and the flames will not set you ablaze. Now he's picking two images that are very poignant, okay? Fire and water in the Old Testament are very, very specific concepts, okay? Now the first thing is of fear of death. You know what the two most common fears of death are? What are the two worst ways to go? Burning and drowning pretty much top the list in most places. It's almost like it's ingrained in our nature to fear drowning and fear fire. And God is saying, of these two things that you're terrified of, I will be with you in it. And the water in the Old Testament was a picture of chaos and destruction. So you think about how God flooded the world, right? He flooded all of earth and wiped out every human being except for eight. And then he began to rebuild with Noah and his family. That water covering the earth was a picture of chaos taking over. He allowed the water to flood everything. And so we're looking at this picture of chaos. We're looking at this picture of destruction. And he, God is saying, even in the place of chaos and destruction in your life, you're not by yourself. He's walking with you because he's the judge. And he's the judge who loves. And then he talks about fire. Fire is also a picture of destruction, right? This refining fire, this destructive fire. And in the, the Bible's metaphor of life, the world was destroyed once by water, but how's it going to be destroyed in the end? 
by fire. And then what happens after that? The rebuilding of God's kingdom, just like with Noah. And so now he's looking at a future prediction. So God walks with us through the past floods, and he's going to walk with us through the future fires. And again, 2023 is here. Do we have any idea what we have to look forward to in 2023? Not a clue. I think it's safe to say there's going to be some fire and there's going to be some chaos. And when those moments come, God makes the promise that I will walk with you through the wind, through the fire, through the water, through whatever comes your way, because I love you. Now notice he doesn't necessarily say there is not going to be any fire, nor does he say there's not going to be any chaos and water in your life. There will be things that will come against us. But he says, when those things come against you, he will be there to walk with you, to give you the strength and the grace to go through it. So he says, as we go through it, as we think about the future, remember what he has done. The Bible says like 240 times, remember what he has done. And he's calling Israel here to remember what he has done. Because can you think of a significant time when the nation of Israel went through water and went through a river? Their salvation story, the book of Exodus. When they think salvation, they think passing through the Red Sea and passing through the Jordan River. And, it, and God is reminding them here. He's like, you remember our history. When I was with you, when you passed through the Red Sea, when I was with you, when you went through the Jordan River, I will be with you again. Remember. So for yourselves, as we enter 2023, and sometimes this is a good time to do this exercise, what has God done in recent history that you have to remember? because we easily forget his salvation. We easily forget what he's done. So what has he done for you in the last year? Have you seen his faithfulness in your trials? Have you seen his faithfulness in the fire? And that's what he's calling us to do. We are commanded to remember. And so then we move to the last part of stretching. As we go through life and all these, these strains in our lives come against us and we are pulled to different places and idol worship is pulling us to worry idol worship is pulling us to temptation and God is pulling us to trust and obey, there is an opportunity there for growth. So you think about stretching. It's like a pretty like hip thing to do, you know, yoga and all that stuff that I don't know much about. But when it comes to stretching, how ancient is it? It's one of the oldest things people have been consistently doing. And you know where it was originally connected? The military. Because you don't want... You don't want to pull a hammy when you're running into battle, you know? It's one thing you pull a hamstring when you're about to run a 5K. Like, that's sad. But if you pull a hamstring in the middle of combat, you're done. And so for thousands of years, soldiers have been stretching. And for those of you who stretch, it's painful. And it has to be painful. Because if it's not, you're not getting all the benefits that stretching provides you with, which is increased flexibility, increased mobility, better blood flow. Supposedly it can like help your mood. It can do all kinds of great things for you, but you have to hold the stretch for 30 seconds to one minute. And if you're stiff and sore, that 30 seconds can be agony, but you have to go through it. Otherwise what happens with age and time? You get less flexible, which means what's gonna happen? More injury. And what is true physically is true spiritually. If you do not let the, the, the struggles of life stretch you in your faith, stretch you towards God's focus, when other things come along, you will break. You will not be able to handle these things. It will hurt you. 
So my dad was in the military and he talked about this, this like, they had to do like two major stretches. They had to be able to do the butterfly, you know, and you had to put your legs all the way to the ground and then you had to do the curb splits. And they gave him a couple weeks to like warm up to the idea. And then they're like, okay, it's time, it's time to show us what you got. And so he went for whatever physical training exercise. And he's like, they're like, show us the, the butterfly. So he did. And they're like, pretty good, but not good enough. And then they got a guy and stood on his legs. And suddenly he's doing the butterfly all the way to the ground. And then they were like, okay, curb split time. And he did pretty well. They put sand down and then they're like, well, but not good enough. And so they had a guy push on his legs until he went all the way down. And I'm like, when he told me that story, I was like seven. I was like, the military is not for me. <laughs> I am no way. But he said they had to do it this way because when you're stretching for yourself, how far do you push yourself? Until it hurts a little. And then we're like, okay, I'm good. Time to get a Twinkie. But if somebody else is involved in your stretching process, they're going to push you. Now he said, because he still has, he still loves the military. He's like, he, they never ripped anyone's muscles too bad. Like they never disabled you for life, but it hurt because they had a goal for you that you didn't have for yourself. Is it possible that God is going to put you through fire and water beyond what you think you can bear in order to show you something of himself? And he will stretch you beyond what you can bear. Or so it will seem to us. Because we think we can handle X, Y, and Z. And he's like, no. With me in your life and the things that I want to accomplish in and through you, you can accomplish so much more. But it's going to take the allowing of him to stretch us. To allow him to put us into places and to walk with us and move with us through those places. That flexibility, that stretching of our faith is painful is not fun. Nobody likes it. But without it, danger happens big time for us. And now we move to the last part, the pull of heartbreak. In Isaiah 43 here, there is a lot of very strong emotion. When God starts to interact with us, the strong emotion becomes apparent very quickly because he goes back and forth between expressing his desire to save and expressing his desire to, to punish. So I want you to take a look at some of these verses. I'll just skim through them. Here's what I want you to notice. I want you to look at the, the jumping back and forth between the heartbreak because I've, you know, I've, I've worked long enough with people that I've seen lots of different kinds of betrayal happen. I've seen couples go through affairs. I have seen kids walk away from parents. In high school world, I have watched uh, high schoolers totally savage each other on social media and betray trust. And if you catch the person in those moments of betrayal, and if you've had that experience, depending on when you grab them, and they talk about that person that they once were so connected to. Sometimes it's, I love them so much and I want them back in my life. Have you ever had, ever had a conversation with those, those kinds of situations or been in those situations? And then that, that longing can instantly turn to white hot anger, can't it? Because the betrayal is suddenly brought back to mind. And so people oscillate when they've been betrayed between loving that person and wanting that person back and wanting things to go back to the way it was and being so angry and so wrathful at what the betrayal was. What I want you to notice here is that God interacts with us in a very similar way. Okay, so Isaiah 42, 10, I'm going to read the passage. And by the way, these are just, a, these are just three, three chapters. I just want you to notice the flip. When I read the passage, is it God positive wanting his people or is it God brokenhearted and angry? Okay. That's where we're going to take a look at. So 42.10, 
our first passage up here is what it says. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. What does God want from his people there? Positive, love, relationship, negative anger. It'll get easier. Pretty positive. Sing to the Lord a new song. Come into his presence, right? He's like, please come home. Now drop down, take a look at 4217. But those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our God, will be turned back in utter shame. Anger, negative. 43.1. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who forms you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Positive. 43.22. Yet you have not called upon me, O Jacob, you have not wearied yourself for me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with sacrifice. Negative. And then 44.1. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, he will help you. Positive. And this is just three chapters. I just want you to know if you keep following this model, it goes all the way through Isaiah in both directions. God is a heartbroken person, but one who wants his people. And if you've ever been betrayed, you know this feeling. You know the desire and the anger, the desire for the relationship to be restored, and the desire to see justice done. And that's where God sits, in this emotional place. And he allows himself to experience that emotion, right? He could have distanced himself from us. You know, there's, a, there's some of us in here that know all too well. You see somebody who's hurt, and what's your reaction? Back away. Because if you get close to hurt people, what happens? They hurt you. But notice what God does. He walks closer to hurt people, and he interacts with them. And then we move now, if you look at this passage, this is the, the, the confusing section. Okay, I'm going to give you the two ideas of how people interpret this. At the end of the day, I don't think it really matters, but take a look at what he says, right? So he says, I'll walk with you through all of this. Take a look at verse three of 43. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious in my sight and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you and men in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and I will gather you from the west. This is the weird passage because what is God saying? I'm going to give other people in place of you. I'm going to ransom you at the cost of others. And it's a very strange passage because he's talking about Egypt, Seba, and Cush. Okay, anyone remember all the interactions of Israel with these three countries? Me neither. But here's the, here's the, the two explanations that people have, okay? One is God, in essence, gave Egypt for the redemption of Israel. Egypt was decimated and just almost to the point of destruction when Israel left in the Exodus account. He's like, I'm going to save Israel at great cost to Egypt. That's one interpretation. There's another interpretation that talks about when the Assyrian army came to destroy Judah. They hear news that Egypt is on its way. And so instead of ransacking and destroying Jerusalem, the nation of Assyria marches south and conquers Egypt. Maybe it's that. But here's the picture. God is choosing to ransom his people at a cost. And it's one of those kind of scenarios where a ransom is a, is a very, very emotional thing. Very emotional. So if you're familiar with the, um, 
the image of the bridge, you know, and there's like a train coming and the bridge is up and the, you're the person is in the booth that has to lower the bridge. You're familiar with this philosophical quandary, this ethical problem. Your kid is in the gears of the bridge. And if you push the button to lower the bridge, your kid is crushed, but the entire trainload of people gets to go through. Or you save your kid, you leave the bridge up and the train crashes into it. Now, this is an ethical question because it's an emotional one. It's not a straight numbers game, is it? If it was a straight numbers game, it wouldn't be a hard decision at all. One life for the life of 100. But because it's your kid, instantly it carries more weight. And it, with God, it's not a straight numbers game with us either. There is deep emotion and involvement with his people. And so he's like, I choose to save Israel at the expense of others. But that's not the biggest picture of ransom, is it? Remember we said about the judge who takes off the robes and goes into captivity with the person? Remember how I said that God did even more than that? So what's the ransom? Not, not blood of people, not gold, not sacrifices, but something bigger. Because in the Old Testament, there's a sin debt. And every single year, the nation of Israel knew that they had a sin debt. Every year, they just added to it. And the Day of Atonement was basically sweeping the sin under the rug. It was God putting the sin on a goat, and then the goat is chased out of the camp, and then there's a sacrifice made, and the sins of the people are covered for a year. Notice the Bible doesn't say removed, covered for one year. And the next year, the same thing happened again, and again, and again, and again. Until Paul writes in Romans 3.25 that in his forbearance, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished until when? The coming of Christ. Christ came, and what did he do? He made the final payment. He didn't sweep your sin under the rug anymore. The ransom for us, like a kidnapped kid, except in this case, we kidnapped ourselves. I don't know if that really works as a metaphor, but, you know, go with it for a minute. We kidnapped ourselves, and the ransom price was Jesus himself coming. And we think about the fire and the, and the, and the water, the two scariest things to die of. But you know what scientifically is the most painful way to go? Crucifixion, still. Now think about this for a second. If you drown, is the water out to get you? No. If your house catches on fire and you burn to death, was the fire out to get you? But if you're crucified, that's never passive. That is always an active agent of people against another person. Water and fire don't have an agenda. But when Jesus came to earth, he interacted with people who did have an agenda. They had a plan, and the plan was to execute him. Because he stood up and he said things like, you're worshiping idols, Israel. And the Pharisees said, no, we're not. And he said, oh, yes, you are. And he looked at other people and he said, you think that the temple is what's going to save you, not the Messiah. I'm him. And they said, oh, no, you're not. And we struggle with the same thing today because Jesus is going to poke our idols often. And he's going to say, are you willing to give that up? And oftentimes we say, I don't want to give that up. I like it too much. And the author of Hebrews will say, when we choose our idols over Jesus, he says, it's like you're crucifying the son of God again. And not literally, but figuratively. We're stepping over the cross and saying, I don't care. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know you died for sin. I know you did that, whatever. It doesn't mean anything to me right now. And that is a very, very 
painful place to be. And so we think about this ransom that the nation of Israel experienced, a payment for their life. This is just a picture of the coming of Christ who's going to make the ultimate payment for every life that surrenders to him, not just Israel, not just that. And so he's going to send his son and he's going to apply it to all of us. And this salvation is beyond what we can imagine. It's more, he underwent more than we could ever know in order to save us from ourselves. And the question is this morning, what do you do with that? Because the only way that authentic change can happen in our lives, the only way that we can let go of our idols and stop being the stretch Armstrong is to die to ourselves, to let his death reign in me in order that, according to Galatians 2, his life can then reign in me. I can be a different person and I can start to let go of those idols. I can allow him to stretch me because it's not me anymore. It's not about me anymore. It's about him. And that can only happen when we realize how gentle our Savior was. I'm using this idea of our gentle Lord, that he was pervious. Now, I I didn't know that was a word until I typed it in hoping it was. We are very familiar with what? The word impervious. But Jesus didn't stay impervious, did he? Unlike Stretch Armstrong, who none of us in here would probably be able to rip apart, he came to the earth in order to be ripped apart. And I want to end this with just this this picture of Jesus. Because if this Jesus loves you and allowed himself to suffer for you, then that gives us a whole new motivation for suffering and living for him. So if you flip back to Isaiah 42, the first part, the coming of the Messiah. And here is what God is telling Israel 700 years before Jesus is ever born— this is, this is what Israel ultimately needs. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now notice how he's going to bring justice, not the way we think. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. What kind of attitude does he have? Look at verse three. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice, and he will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. And in his law, and here's our word again, the islands will put their hope. That's us. This Savior comes to earth in such a gentle way. It says that a bruised reed, right, a broken blade of grass, he's going to be so gentle with broken people, he won't break them further. In a, in a wick that's about to go out, maybe some of you in here are feeling like your faith is on the edge of going out. He says, this person who's suffering, he will not extinguish their faith. He will bring justice, but he will do it his way. And now the challenge for us, where is your hope? Is your hope in this idol that's going to produce something for you at some point in your life? What's it demanded of you so far? What has it given you in exchange? And then you have the savior of the world who offers you something else and is asking something from you. What has he given for you and in exchange for what? And that's our choices. It always boils down to that. The savior who died for you or an idol who will demand your life. Choose which way you will go. But one thing is true. You can't be stretched forever. You can't be in the middle forever. The both and will not work in this place. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you did send your son to be our ransom. 
I am so thankful that you didn't expect me to change before you came after me. But I, I do know that you demand that we change now that we're with you, but not by our own strength, but by your strength and your glory. And I just thank you again, Lord, for your son and all that he accomplished. Help us, Lord, to live in that reality all the days of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.